Specs Summer Series Episode 1, Violet. You're listening to SpecsCast. Welcome to SpecsCast, a podcast for discussing the science and technology of space exploration. I'm Phil, and TJ is here with me today. Hello. And we'll be interviewing Patrick and David from the Cornell Space Systems Design Studio. And why don't you guys introduce yourselves? I'm Patrick Lissandru. I work on the uh, Cornell Space Systems Design Studio on the Violet Nanosatellite Project. Hi, everyone. I'm David Levine. I'm also a member of Cornell's Violet Satellite Project team. And can you explain a little bit briefly about what Violet is? We'll get into more detail later, but in general. Sure. So Violet was uh, Cornell's entry into the University Nanosat um, like challenge or program back in 2009, I think. Um, and we ended up we were, we got second place, and they still wanted to launch us because they liked our research. So we started development in like 2011, um, and we just finished the satellite uh, last semester. Uh, so the goal of the satellite, the whole <clears throat> point of it, is. Um, to study control moment gyroscope um, like algorithms, like control actuation algorithms, as well as to uh, verify the hardware. So it basically also a hardware test. Um, and then on top of that, we were going to slap on our own mission of adding in a ultraviolet spectrometer um, and looking at Earth's upper atmosphere um, through small angles with the sun. Uh, that ended up being descoped by the Air Force, but uh, that's sort of the gist of it. Um, control moment gyroscopes are uh, pretty much reaction wheels with two extra uh, or uh, degrees of freedom. So pretty much you can gimbal them in whatever direction. Um, and uh, yeah, we had eight of them in a bunch of different, um, and we can turn them on in different geometric orientations uh, to study like different laws and, and, and you know their efficiencies and stuff. Awesome. So, yeah. How, when did you guys join the, the Violet team? Um, so myself, I joined uh, first semester freshman year. So right off the bat, like third week of school. And I joined the first semester of my sophomore year, so after my, uh, my first year of college. Oh, yeah, what year should, was that? Oh, yeah. We should, <laughs> we should say, uh, I'm going into my junior year next year, and... Then I'm going to be a senior, so we both joined in the fall of 2014. So, yeah. Awesome. That'll do it. And what teams are you on, respectively? Like, what, what do you do? David, why don't you go first? So, um, during my time on Violet, I was the lead of the harness subsystem, so I was responsible for all the electrical wiring, uh, basically figuring out how um, all the different satellite components would physically interconnect and how we could um, develop ways to actively communicate and um, foster communication between all of the parts of the satellite. And then um, more recently, this past semester, I was not only the lead of the harness subsystem, but I was also the co-lead of the integration and testing subsystem. So I was, me and one other member were responsible for most, probably almost, almost all of the integration, physical integration of the satellite. So we put the satellite together, um, which was really, really cool. And we got to do a lot of clean room work. So we were the ones in the clean room um, every day for, for a, a good period of time, just basically bolting the thing together, which was great. With every satellite, there are different subsystems. But especially since you wanted to do two sort of experiments plus 
eight gyroscopes and everything um did it fit together well or were they all like built they're built to fit into each other but was right. it cohesive so i would say it was definitely very cohesive there was a lot of um inner subsystem dialogue all the time and i think we had a really good mix of people um by the end of our team i would say it, it did take a while to figure out how we get a good mix of hardware versus software versus electrical people kind of mixing and blending together well. Um, I think it honestly just took a while to find the people who were passionate enough to want to put in the time to to really to really give to the project um, and not kind of just just doing it on you know on the side. Um, but by the end, I think I think we had a good mesh of of all of the necessary components in a successful spacecraft in terms of personnel. Um, and then those people were able to deliver, um, which was really cool to see. And it kind of, we got, we were able to see the team kind of evolve before our own eyes um, during our almost two years now being a part of the project. How many people are on the team? Basically towards the end of the cycle, we had around 22 to 25 people, but um, previously back in like 2011, the early days, it, it would be like probably peak 50, 60 people. Wow. Which is, um, you know, it, it, it can be good, but uh, a lot of the times people start abstracting stuff away and then people can hide in little nooks and crannies and do no work um, or say they have done work. And so that can be really bad. But also you, you don't want like a core group because then everyone gets really stressed out because everything comes down on just a couple people so you have to balance the two but that's that's i guess the timeline it was the beginning big uh at the end very small um but yeah patrick can you explain what you did for the team yeah sure um so freshman year i came on as the lead of the telemetry and communication subsystem so i pretty much had to deal with um all of the rf engineering of the satellites so, and the, what's rf stand for uh radio frequency okay. so pretty much I had to, um, and then that ended up moving itself into pretty much debugging all of the um, internal comm between boards, which is interesting. But uh, so at first it was all of RF. So we have uh, two UHF transceivers, um, and basically I had to make sure that they're transmitting the right power, that had the right um, packet architecture, uh, bit uh, bit rate, all that stuff, and then I had to do all the tests for it as well. And then at the end, we have a full radio link test, which we call simulated communications. Um, and so that's pretty much just everything assembled, uh, ground station to satellite with a simulated attenuation, which is pretty much a RF loss in the middle. So anything can affect RF. And so we had to account for that in the simulated communications. So I, I, uh, I trained a freshman all the way up to working knowledge on how to maintain the ground station. So you did the communication of the satellite and, and the ground station and the ground station, yeah. Um, and then I and then I, a predominant amount of work that I um, had to do later was also um, from microcontroller to microcontroller. So we have like ten microcontrollers on the satellite, um, and so I had to debug and make sure that code would run and communicate with each other on all of those. Last semester, it was pretty much all microcontroller debugging and power subsystem debugging. So I worked a lot on um, state of charge code. Um, as well as like how the satellite would uh, get alive from its inhibit. So we have like, every satellite that's launched from the ISS has, has to go into an inhibit scheme where it turns off for like 30 minutes minimum. And then in the end, I ended up modifying like every single board in the satellite. 
so, on purpose or like, well, like to get happened. it to work perf- like the way that we want it to so like i have i have been the master of puppets for all of the the only board i have not modified was the the flight computer and that was something we bought from a company that was like 30 grand yeah. and the, I, there's no way i'm touching that like that that's where I draw my line. Pretty much all the leads on the team by the end of the semester ended up just doing whatever they had to do to get it to work, regardless of the definition of their subsystem. So, like, David was doing um, harness stuff at work or, at first, but, I mean, he was all over the place. He was doing command and data handling stuff. He was doing attitude control stuff. Um, and so that's what happens when deadlines come quickly. Yeah, um, and I can speak to... Patrick really covered that well, but um, what really happened was... Uh, a lot of us had to branch into areas we weren't really comfortable with when we joined the team. Um, when I joined the team, I was just a lowly <laughs> member of the harness subsystem where my main job was to assemble connectors. And um, so I was, my job was for predominantly technical soldering work. Um, and then we had an opening due, due to just people graduating and some people just transitioning to different projects. And then I kind of took on a lot of um, basically running our checkouts testing for the entire satellite. So basically figuring out how every component had to be tested in a way that you could verify that it could nominally give you telemet- good telemetry and that it was being powered on correctly by the EPS system, um, electrical power system, and that it... Uh, would function correctly in space in our mission. And I had to do that for every component, which was a huge undertaking. Um, And then we not only had to figure out how the data rates and the data communication for each component had to be, how that was different for each each component and you need, how you needed to configure your, your, your commanding and your, your flight code to expect a different data structure from each individual satellite component, like your star tracker, your sun sensor. You mean different data structure? So what I mean is like the, when I'm talking to the star tracker, the star tracker, the way we'd command everything would be the same. Right. But the way that the star tracker gives me its data is different than the way that the sun sensor gives me its data because they're just different. They're they're not made by the same manufacturer. They're, they're, they both, are just inherently different devices. Um, and then we had to figure out how to do it all over RF, uh, over through, through, through radio, which was very, very hard. Um, so, yeah, basically everybody has to get together and figure out like how the hell do we talk to these components. Right. And so checkouts was a big, like huge, like full team thing that we all had to get together. But we did it. Out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> if for example, I joined the team I mean, it's over now. But <laughs> if I joined the team and I wanted, right. I needed to know what Violet is, what it right. does, and the purpose. Can okay. you explain that? So, basically, Violet, its its goal is to be the most agile satellite of its size ever built. And how big is it? So, it's 0.5 meters cubed. So, it's it's not a CubeSat. It's, it's more on... It, it's like... CubeSat's big brother. Well like 27 of them. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's 27U. Um, uh, so this is a huge satellite. This is uh, pretty much like industrial, like grade, huge amount of work goes into it. But from a systems level, what the satellite does is exactly what David said. It just basically will spin itself in, in uh, one point as it orbits around Earth. Um, and basically will just point itself. 
Um, and so that, that's the goal of it. And this has applications in so spy why, satellites, optical systems. Why do you need eight control moment gyroscopes or six at a time to, like, how is that? You don't. Um, well, so what's really cool about Violet is that um, these basically, you need six, or the more gyroscopes you have, right? So these allow you to have, to control the attitude in three degrees of freedom. So you can spin around any axis and we can spin up to, um, I think at maximum it was 20 degrees per second, Wow! but it was 10 degrees per second, which it was more reasonable. Um, which is really, really fast. Do you um, know if, do you have a figure on like in general, if it's about three, two and a half degrees per second, that's regular. Yeah. And so then it's normal. Violet was 10. Yes. But you also have to remember the higher the mass of the satellite, the slower that's going to be. So this is not like a super scalable thing. Um, it's obviously really impressive and new technology, but um, it all depends upon the actual mechanics of your And the smaller you go, the faster, I mean, the less... Yes, the less mass that you have to uh, chug around. So, yeah. yeah. And we don't need eight at all. Uh, that was purely for just doing... Testing um, different configurations, exactly. different orientations. We had, we, there's, uh, we, we had tons of algorithms from different guest investigators who wanted to use different geometric... Uh, I guess organization. Oh, I see. So you could ha arrange them in yeah. this one type of triangle, like a triangle, or all like in there's one a box. Line. There's a pyramid. There's a, there's a triangle. There there are tons of different. And you just yeah. flip a switch and try different. Yes. So a, a transistor. Yeah. So you could have <laughs> you could have like you know five CMGs spinning up at specific rates. Then you could change to you know three. CMGs on one side, three on the other, like the, each CMG control moment gyroscope has a specific position in the satellite. So depending upon where those gyroscopes are located, you can spin up different gyroscopes in different configurations and at different rates. So you can have the same configurations, but change the speeds of how fast the wheels spin. And then that changes how you control your, your attitude. And a, a control moment gyroscope is, Just is, that, is that the same as a reaction wheel? It is, it is a reaction wheel that you can gimbal. You can much. spin. Right, so, so you, you, use that, you spin up a disc and you, have, you use the angular momentum yeah. of the disc. And like with and a helicopter, you, and then you spin the disc in a in another direction, right? And right. due to the conservation of yeah. angular momentum, exactly, um, so it induces a torque on exactly. the satellite. Yeah. Just one one question about the microcontrollers. You said you have eight to ten different ones. Uh, when you guys were probing for that, do you guys have a common code base that is running on all of these that's executing different commands, or do you specialize the code that's running on each of those? Yeah, so we don't have so we don't we don't have any sort of thing that we can apply to every um, microcontroller and say yo it does this. Um, the communication protocol yes, because we have um, our own custom sort of microcontroller to microcontroller communication protocol. So they think about it's like thinking about it. Um, having a in the UN, everybody thinks in their own native language, but then they talk to each other in English. Sure, is that's that a good exactly how analogy. That's like, a if, analogy. if France was, you know, sending packets over a radio, and you know, but so the code is very specialized uh, per microcontroller. So stuff on the power board is not going to do pretty much anything that stuff on the radio board is. And is do. that for uh, an efficiency reason? Like it's more efficient or, or um, 
like written in a way that that particular piece of hardware uses it better well, like it so, would be less clunky than some other system some other way it was written um so we just write the code to operate in the way that it needs to operate um so like if we we're going to write a radio board it's going to be purely specific to that radio but it's, like what are you using like c in one place yes. and python in no, another c place c on everything um, everything is written in C, uh, including um, the flight computer code, which is not a microcontroller. It's it's actually like a code base living on hard disk on uh, a computer. So if everything's satellite. written in C, isn't that the same language? I don't understand. Can't C code run on something else? So That's not true. So each microcontroller has code on it that is specific to whatever device that microcontroller is basically like controlling right so the radios live on their own circuit board and there's a microcontroller on that board that's responsible for controlling the uh, the radio and the power board which is a completely different piece of hardware has another microcontroller on it that has its own code that controls the power board and it's true for each piece of hardware all of these different pieces of hardware can talk to each other because violet our team developed a packet structure that was common to all of these different components, but all of the code is written in C, right? So why not have one huge piece of code that you load on and so you can't send do it? that because they're all different processors and they all have different memory banks. So the the processor on the, the power board is inherently completely different from the processor on oh, the radio board. Oh, so it's not the same type of microcontroller. No, no, no. Oh, so it's the same type of microcontroller. It's just they need different code to do their jobs. The only link between them is a serial communication protocol that we have our own packet structure for. I'm a hardware guy. Can you explain packet structure in yes, like two sentences? Exactly. So basically, if I want to send something to you, yeah, and you want to receive it and send something back to me. There need to be two lines, pretty much. There needs to be, uh, I'll have a TX and RX, transmit and receive, and you'll have the same. So this is, this is the basics of serial communication. Right. So I will be sending out packets to you, which are pretty much just, you can imagine it just bits, right? So I'll have the, my first byte will be like the start of my packet, and it'll be the same across the board. So let's say it says uh, 0xc0, that's hex, that's going to be one byte. Um, and so that's just going to be a stream of bits that says C0. So once you receive that, you're like, oh crap, I'm getting a packet. And then after that, you're going to get an ID. And that ID will be specific to each microcontroller. So I, I, I got a packet. Now I know where it's from. Now I know where it's from. Here's my payload. And then I'm just going to wait for all that data to come in. And then once that data has come in, does and I know a, the length of it. Does it have a caboose? <laughs> like a little thing at the end? Yes, it does. It has uh, a checksum. So pretty much... If we can, if we, and that's just a mathematical thing, you, you put it through an algorithm, and once you figure out uh, that it's correct, then you know your data is. Uh, oh, so it validates correct. itself to say, exactly. like, hey, I got all the stuff you were expecting to And this send. is correct. And this is correct data. So once that's done, we're like, okay, we got that data, and then the processor will do other stuff with it. And this is just like how computers talk to you. Oh, this is this exactly. Is, this is electronics 101, right? This is the basics of a processor, yeah. Okay. Why did you choose to make your own rather than, I, I mean, mean, that, that might have been... You have to, right? There's not really another, there's no like, there are like, I guess there are some standard formats, but for us, it doesn't make any sense to use a, a standard packet format. 
it's just something you do with oh. every. Okay. Sounds super complicated to me, but it's it's okay. really I promise you not at all. Yeah, TJ um, um, probably knows that way better than me. Oh yeah, packets are great. What else do you want to know about uh, the microcontroller stuff? So, do you guys have a primary microcontroller that's kind of running the operating system or sending out commands, or is it a very distributed system where everything is kind of doing its own thing? So, it is a highly distributed system. We do not have a single thing running the show. Uh, what you might be thinking of is our flight computer, which is nothing like the standard microcontroller. Um, it is uh, it is like what you'd find in like let's say your your MacBook. Um, it has a, it has I think it's L2 cache. Um, it's got a hard disk that we can load all of our flight code on, and then that is the pretty much the brain of the satellite. Um, it'll be sending commands through this other board with two microcontrollers called the, the CDH for command and data handling. And then those will send out commands to other the other peripheral components. So like, let's say we realized we needed to send a, uh, a beacon at one point. Um, that's gonna be in part of the code on the flight computer. And the, the flight computer is gonna tell the CDH microcontroller to tell the radio microcontroller to send a packet out to ground. Um, and we can command from ground. So it is a highly distributed system. Talking about the flight computer, do you guys have any redundancy or like a second flight computer? And how do you deal with the radiation environment space? Are you using radiation hardening components? Uh, is there any kind of uh, redundancy in the processor? You guys can go into that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Um, so funny thing with redundancy, we don't actually have flight computer redundancy. Um, that's just not something that we could afford. Um, and we were using a component uh, that is incredibly reliable and radiation hardened. And so that's, that's our flight computer. Um, and that same flight computer, pretty much the same model was is used on like every Apache helicopter, um, a couple of the rovers on Mars, um, and then the operating system we use is a customized Unix-based operating system um, called VXWorks that is run on plenty of spacecraft. That was that's a commercial off-the-shelf thing. Right. Um, when you're developing satellites like that, um, and even CubeSats, it, it's totally not. Um, it's not really practical to get commercial off-the-shelf stuff um, unless you're doing like a really simple mission. Due to right? cost, or due well, to the due fact to that everything what has you want to do, yeah. you know. Um, so for Violet, there was no way we could do commercial off-the-shelf stuff to, uh, especially for PowerBoard, supplying power to every single device. There was nothing available on the market that can do that, um, as well as commanded data handling and controlling our CMGs. Like there's, there was not a thing. Like the flight computer that was. I mean, you're not going to develop your own yeah. flight computer. So With components like that, makes total sense. Yeah. Other stuff that you did buy, like... Um, sensors. Sensors and things. Did you buy everything based on flight heritage? Um, like saying, well, we know this worked on that satellite, so we're confident it'll work on ours? Or did you do it... Like TJ mentioned radiation hardening. Yeah. Um, in space, there's a lot of components that work just fine on the surface of Earth. Um, get blasted with radiation and, and they fail. Yeah, and they fail. Yeah. So what we did is we got advice from the Air Force because ultimately it's their satellite. So they wanted us to use specific components that had flight heritage. So that's what we did. Um, with a satellite our scale and our, like I guess, uh, quantity of money that we shoved into it, it doesn't make sense to get something that's not tested in space because if it breaks, 
then that's it for the entire thing. With CubeSats, they're pretty cheap, small, um, expendable, so it's not a problem. You know, throw in components like that, and then you're testing them. Are you guys scheduled to launch? Um, and and if so, where would you go? How would it be deployed after? Certainly. Um, so launch? we don't have a finite launch time. Uh, we are taking a large organizational change in the next um, six months. Um, and where we're going with this project seems like we're going to launch in 2017, uh, but that is not certain as is nothing in right. the aerospace industry. Right. Um, and then as for actually going up, we would go soft stowed on a cargo capsule. Um, so that might be, you know, uh, a so Dragon. The Soyuz. Or, or so, so, well, not a Soyuz. Don't they carry many. cargo? They, the progress uh, capsules carry cargo. Progress. Yes, progress. Yeah. Uh, but we, I don't think they put US okay. payloads on that. Um, or the Cygnus, right? So, yeah. Um, but basically we go up, the astronauts will put us in uh, a small chamber. I forgot on which, which side of the ISS. But we use a certain payload adapter. I think it's called the Kaber adapter. And, and that's so, a standard NASA space station adapter that's already installed. It's a standard NanoRacks adapter. And NanoRacks is like this, basically this payload company. They deal with two launch providers to make sure that your payload adapter stuff is right. worked out. So, okay. So then what happens is the door closes and then another door on the other side opens after depressurizing. And then the Japan arm comes and grabs us on, grabs onto us. And then flings you out. Flings us out. Yeah. Cool. So, um, yeah, since you're soft stowed, it's do you still um, like how much work it would go into the interface with the ISS? Like, do you is there still work to do to add the adapter so you can connect to it, or is it like it's engineered right into the structure of our satellite? So pretty much all they have from to the get go, you already decided this, and yeah, okay. So basically what they have to do is just put us on their adapter plate. And then we have a couple of remove before flight things that the astronauts would have to do. Um, but besides that, it's pretty simple. So originally this wasn't what the mission was supposed to entail. Originally we were going to be a secondary payload. So like deployed from like a, fair, a payload fairing. Um, and I think Patrick probably knows the details of this, but um, I believe this was partially getting lucky and partially NASA having a little bit of um, just a similar design structure between the ISS and uh, what the, the, the pay payload deployment mechanism within um, these systems that they'd use for like orbital, that orbital uses, SpaceX uses, anyone who has a fairing, right? Um, but the basically our original design was to not go to the ISS was to come out a payload fairing, but that same structure was actually the exact same physical layout of the this ISS deployment mechanism. Oh, so you didn't have to change anything nope. in your design. They're just like we're gonna put you here instead. Yep. Cool. Um, and that was decided. Like, how much influence does um, the Cornell uh, Space Systems Design Studio have? <laughs> On launch environment? On launch. Absolutely none. So pretty much what you do is <laughs> you uh, you ask a company to get you a launch, and then that's what they do. It doesn't, like, you can pay for ISS, and you can definitely go to the ISS, but uh, where they put you in orbit is not up to you. Uh, obviously, you're going to be low with orbit, and it's going to be 
generically circular. It's not going to be some highly elliptical thing. But and you guys don't have particular requirements on altitude or anything? No. Um, inclination, yes. But altitude, we're fine anywhere from 330 to 500 kilometers. Yeah, so as you just say, hey, we just need to get into space. Just, if we go to the ISS, we're good. If we're a secondary payload, that's a different story because then we ride on whatever the primary payload's orbit is. And they're just, they're just let go, you know. Yeah. Or, or like a peapod is attached to a ring. Yeah. And then they fling open and... Yeah. Yeah. But you're... Uh, Violet... Uh, how massive is Violet? It's pretty... I mean, it's half a meter cubed, but... Uh, it's about uh, 50 kilograms. Wow. 50 kilograms. Yeah, yeah. so that's not going in a peapod. <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> peapod bazooka. We're... Uh, it's aluminum... Uh, 7075 yeah. predominantly um it's so about 100 pounds about, about 100 yeah a little over 100 pounds um it's she's hefty um we, and, we attempted for weight saving i mean these 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 gyroscopes alone i think comprise most of our weight they're, i mean they're, that's how they work the more massive a control moment gyroscope is the better it works right isn't that correct yeah. Um, so those, that's a lot of our weight there. Um, I would say this, the, the structure itself, so I can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so how our structure is, is that Violet has basically, um, a truss structure inside called isogrid. So it's basically, you have, um, there are four of these sort of panels that are basically like, basically a piece of metal that has been machined out into a truss. And then there are four of them, and they're attached in a cross. So, you know, like a plus sign. Yeah. And then that plus sign, which is all a giant truss uh, structure, is put on a bottom plate. Okay. Um, and that's just... And there, it's all bolted together. All okay. this is bolted together. Um, and then, basically, the components are attached to this truss structure truss structure at different places either on this plus sign in the center or on four outer walls which are just simply just taken up and bolted to this plus structure in the center um and this truss was designed by us um basically to be able to hold our specific gyroscopes and components and boxes and everything um, in the not only in the correct configuration, but in a way that would allow for a center of mass to be where it needs to be, because that's really important for this case. Otherwise, if you start torquing up the satellite in one way, you if your center of mass was wrong, you wouldn't be able to to control yourself in the way you'd want to. Um, so, for example, like it's not like we just threw a control moment gyroscope on there and thought oh the moment that this control moment gyroscope like moment literally meaning like like a physical torque due to gravity of the weight of it um first off is this going to cause the aluminum to yield is this going to cause like what are the stresses we're going to have just from the loading of the just the weight of everything you know um so like for example there are pieces of the truss that are solid where there's going to be a gyroscope put on there right or um there are holes in the walls for, for where the star tracker needs to look out into space or the sun sensor needs to look out into space um so it's it was all i think the mechanical design is very elegant actually um because there's a lot of a lot of different hardware going into the satellite and it fits pretty seamlessly into this design um 
which is it's a it's a cube. It's just a big cube. Yeah. Um, and I think having a, a sort of a truss inside it allows for the structural rigidity along with having the the basically I would say there's there's not much room for a really big uh, stress concentration factor anywhere. Um, and the reason being is because the mass is so distributed across this internal structure mechanically. Right. Um, and I think this also helped us in the integration process because you could really focus on each part modularly, which is really important. You didn't have to sort of do everything at once and have things, you know, one thing has to go in the satellite this time. I mean, obviously there were a few parts of the satellite that were dependent upon other parts in terms of like- You didn't have like to worry about it build. in terms of the structure mm -mm. at all. We didn't have to worry that if we assemble it incorrectly, we're gonna break it before it even launches. Um, obviously, given how much the CMGs weighed, it was important to make sure that we did that in a way where the satellite, we were taking precautions while building it, but at the same time, we weren't exactly scared of, you know, basically the metal literally being like warped or, or, the, or the, the structure being broken going up right. while we were going up. I do have a question. Um, how were the isogrids machined? Where, did you use a, a mill and just cut out big triangles? It's all CNC. So it's out it's, of one huge sheet of stock aluminum. So each, so basically, yes, each piece was made out of one piece of stock. So, um, for example, the four inner pieces for the what we call the core. So each outer plate, each outer wall, basically, if you think of a cube, so each yeah. the top, the sides, the bottom, those were all just basically CNC in a. Th they, they didn't need a three-axis. Um, actually, did they have a three-axis? Yeah, because you'd have yeah. to. Go to Z and the Z, right? So there was three axis CNC, um, uh, and the the ISO grid was done in the same way because each piece is just one piece of you know I think quarter inch stock, um, maybe a little bit thinner than that, um, and then just machined, just having a milling using an end mill to just cut away. The yeah. pieces for to make the the truss, and then the the outer walls. We have places, you know, where you need a hole. You just do the same thing, um, because the holes aren't circular in shape always. Yeah. Um, a few of them are. A few of them aren't, um, depending upon the structures that were right. the components that were needing to look through those holes. Right. Um, but overall, we didn't. I think most of the mechanical side of things was decided before we joined the team and. That was really solid, and the people who had joined, the people who designed that, did a good, did a really good job in terms of the mechanical side of things, because right. we really didn't have to worry about that that much. And you, you did a harnessing um, that kind of goes in with bolting everything together, right. because right. where they go in the satellite, and um, like if you've, if any of the listeners have built their own computer, um, I have. Cable management is a huge deal. Yeah. Um, whether it comes to, you know, you don't want to obstruct certain things, you don't want your cables flopping around, and, like, that is something that has to wait until the very end. So, um, like, can you, can you talk about your experience? Just, like... Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of things that people don't think about when it comes to harness. Like, there's, 
especially with our teams, just from a general perspective, there's all these different subsystems we're talking about, but no one really, from a general standpoint, is thinking like, oh crap, you know, this one component has to connect from this one board to the other board. Oh yeah, and then all of these components not only have to fit in this limited amount of space, but they all got to connect to each other without the wires flopping around, like you said. Everything's got to pass vibrational testing, you know. So they don't wiggle out of their Exactly. And so in launch, we know this thing's not going to fall apart. Um, so what it was a bit of a struggle fitting everything in. And I think that's one thing that I've learned about this is that you need to have a good model of everything before you even begin building a satellite. So our, there is a SOLIDWORKS model of our satellite. It was utter crap. It was terrible. We didn't have any sort of influence on that. That was made when we joined the team. And it was terrible, but it was the only reference we had. Um, did you did you make technical drawings, or was it only we did. in the 3D? We did. Um, so we had drawings derived from right, our CAD, yeah. um, from our assembly. And one thing, for example, they just didn't account for the harnesses as they should have. They just, they just weren't in there, basically. Um, the one thing they did have in there was in the original design, they did have strain relief. Um, so basically, I call them hooks. They're not really hooks. They're basically, they're these little... Um, like a tie-down? Yeah, like a, basically a, a tie-down. They're called TC-105s is the technical name. Basically all it is, it's just a piece of metal that gets bolted to the, to the, to the truss that has a little loop on it. So you can attach the, the, the harness, like place the harness in front and zip tie it to that oh, okay. loop. So you're not actually applying stresses to the grid where you could cause so, torques on the structure that you So the want. loop is literally a, a wire that is connected in one spot to the ISO grid, but still kind of has wiggle room. Exactly. Okay. So, so basically, if that thing is basically applying less force to the truss structure than if you zip tied directly to it. Right, because you'd have a few more degrees of freedom exactly. to, to wiggle exactly. around. It can wiggle, right? So if the if the if that loop of metal moves that you're zip tied to, then that's even less, Yeah. That's, that's force that's not being transferred to the structure. Right. So that's, that was actually accounted for in, in the CAD. The problem was is that the harness people and the mechanical people didn't talk to each other as much as they should have. So if you have these strain relief places, basically the mechanical people said the harness has to go here, but the electrical people basically said, well, we have a problem because this harness has, for example, like if you have a harness that needs to attach to like one place and another place in opposite corners, in opposite corners of the satellite, and it's going through a grid, right? It's not just there's room to go everywhere, and there's there's there, there's physical pieces of metal in the way, and if let's say the mechanical person doesn't account for even inches of distance that need to be there that are the harness people account for when you go to put it in yeah if you can't if the cables don't reach you're you're screwed you can't attach things right so when i was building i got to build the harness which was really rewarding because i got to talk to to the to the integration people and i actually became i'm a mechanical engineer and so i got to kind of work on both both ends which was really cool yeah. because I got to kind of work the harness to make sure that it would fit. 
um, in the end. And then I got to physically put it in the satellite myself, that's, which was pretty pretty sweet. That's pretty cool, yeah. Um, and one thing that I will say, for all the harnesses that I built and I designed, and with the help of um, our other integration lead who was instrumental in helping us do this because I, he really knew his stuff better than me and I'm still learning, but um, all the ones that we built in-house were fine. The problem was is that these control moment gyroscopes were built you know, by another company in Ithaca. Um, uh, and the harnesses came, they came with their own harnesses, which was good because it's less work we had to do. But the problem was is that they were designed to your exactly. satellite. So they were set lengths. And the problem was that these control moment gyroscopes are so rare, expensive, and difficult to work with. Did you have to like cut off the connectors and splice together, like Frankenstein together longer harnesses? So, so for some components, we did have to do some janky stuff like that. <laughs> um, but in the end, it actually, and, it, and as Patrick can attest to as well, it's terrifying because if you have a piece of harness that doesn't have, has a piece of exposed wire that's touching the satellite body, you can short everything and then break everything. We actually had that happen. So. Um, so but that's another story, but, but going back to what I was saying is that, um, we did have to do some pretty weird stuff, but the key with, with harnessing, which what I found is that if it's done diligently and it's done with the act, the adequate protection. So basically what I mean is if solder joints are made correctly and they're not cold, then you can verify that, you know, data and power will be able to get to where it needs to go correctly because right. your your physical connections will be okay. Every solder connection needs to have the correct heat shrink on it. Every place, pretty, pretty much every place where there is a connection that splices into two different places, that point, that branches, that branching point needs to have heat shrink on it. Basically, if you just have no exposed wire, you'll be good. <laughs> but going back to those CMG harnesses, I was saying that came with the CMGs. Um, the problem was is that since we just didn't interface with the control moment gyroscopes that much because the focus for the attitude control system sub team was not how are they going to fit in the satellite it was how do we control it. control it how do we use these algorithms given to us how do we basically write the code to allow these controlling algorithms to function in space that was the goal um, and like I said, these control moment gyroscopes are super expensive, so we were honestly, it was terrifying to take them out before we wanted to minimize how much they were used across the board. Because the less you use them, the less um, risk for blowing them up. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So did you take the special, um, the way it, the harness worked, can, it interfaced with the control moment gyroscope in one way that was probably proprietary. Yep. Was the other end... Uh, standard or configured in a way that you guys had already dealt with so or did you have to make your own connector made also phase? proprietary so so they made did they have to supply the control board yep. for it too oh okay yep. cool so there was a control board for that controlled all the control moment gyroscopes that we have a connector interface with each each harness needs to connect to a few specific places that needs to be yeah so basically to go into a little bit more of technical detail, if that's okay. Sure. There are 
like the satellite had three main harnesses, harness bundles, right? Yeah. So what that means is is that the harness would connect to two major places. Like the power board. Right. So it would have a connector, like one connector on each of those three bundles that connects to the power board, and one connector on each of those three bundles that connects to the command and data handling board, which is basically the routing board of the satellite. And then there would be lines coming from both of those connectors that would go to all the peripheral components. So basically you'd have each of those three bundles, and there are three of them just for ease of integration and just for um, assembly, because otherwise you got this massive wire and you're, yeah. it's, a, it's a web. Um, and uh, So basically you, got a, you have lines coming from the power connector going to all the peripherals, and you have lines from the data connector going all to the peripherals on all three of these. So right. like, for example, the star trackers for one component, let's say I'm talking about the star tracker, right? That component's harnessing lived on one of those three bundles. So all of its data lines and all of its power lines lived on one harness bundle. And the fun part in the end was figuring out how could you put three separate harness bundles that all need to go to three separate places into the satellite. And I think what was really good about it is that the mechanic in the original design, the electrical and mechanical people had enough dialogue that, for example, the the harnesses for one area of the satellite wouldn't really conflict with like physically cross over yeah. the 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 harness for another part of the satellite. So basically how we did it was at the earlier I talked about how there's that internal like cross structure yeah. structure. The core. The core, right? The core. So we had a core harness bundle, one of those three. And then a lot of components were on the left. We call it left, but it's yeah. arbitrary. One side of the satellite had another harness bundle and the other side did. The opposite side. Exactly. The opposite so you side. Had, yeah, three three. The like main arteries. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, and then the power board and routing board were lo- located in areas that could allowed us to reach all the places we needed to reach, which was good. Um, and we just had to figure out the problem was is was wire lengths yeah was an issue because yeah was the, was the location of each um, component. Um, decided like firmly decided and finalized early on yeah very early on it's pretty much based on our mass models because we really we really need to balance them because i mean exactly. you're doing a control yeah. or um it's a control the payload is controlled exactly so, so for us to have as much accuracy and knowledge about what the hell we're doing we really needed an accurate mass model yeah. and have the center of gravity to be as to the in a point in which we needed it did extending the lengths of harnesses or including the harnesses in general add enough mass to um, throw off your your estimates. Well, we won't know. So, well, well, <laughs> it adds enough uncertainty where it could be a problem, but we're just not going to really know. I mean, and that goes along with tying it down because if something's free floating, then the exactly. location of its mass and is not necessarily constrained. This was all modeled though. Even the harnesses, they were all modeled in our uh, CAD stuff. What so. what CAD program did you use? He can say that. Um, also, my eye yeah. just died for some reason. Which is strange. Your who? My audio just died. I can't hear anything. It's okay. Okay. I can anyway. hear you. Um, but uh, we use Solberg's 
for all of our CAD. Um, Including routing and, and... That's the problem. Yeah. So so we use Microsoft Visio was used for the harness diagrams. Oh, oh right? which advice for people out there who are doing harnesses. Never, ever do that. I think Brian can say and attest to Altium as a harness thing. Super good. You can even import it as a step file into your... I, what, what did... What are you recommending? I'm recommending Altium. You can design harnesses in Altium. And what you can do, which we probably should have done, is send those files to an outsourcer to make your harnesses for you. And that's a thing you can also do. But so, you can import them into CAD. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah, so that's that's one way we could have done it. Um, we use Visio, which was hard because Visio is used for basically diagram making. That's it. Yeah. And I mean, that makes sense. Right. Business so, people and stuff. So, so flowcharts, right? Flowcharts. So it was, it worked. It was, it was. You know, we made. Um, but as far as the like, um, you, you mentioned the stresses and stuff. I'm sure you did finite element analysis of the yes. structure. Yes, we used ANSYS. Um, oh, you used ANSYS for that. You didn't use. Uh, I know uh, SolidWorks has add-ons and simulations. No, we did not use those. Personally, those I think those are awful. I don't like those at all. Do we um, know what we use? ANSYS. Hundred percent. We did. I'm a hundred percent sure. It was like um, five years ago. Uh, well, Max, Max did a bunch of that as well. He did Our structures guy. Stuff. He did thermal yeah. stuff, but he also worked with ANSYS and a lot. And for thermals, did he use ANSYS he as did. well? He did. He yeah. did. Um, so uh, we used we used SolidWorks for our main CAD and um, mass properties and mass properties. Yep. Yep. Uh, and that was that was generally good. I think the problem with the CAD was that no one put the harnesses in there. Um, which was a really big deal, and I think if we had done what Patrick said, use, using like Altium is Patrick can talk about that in depth. But um, what we did was we didn't include the harnesses in the CAD, which was a problem. Yeah. So we but we did factor it factor it into our mass model. Oh, okay. Um, but no one really ha knew exactly like that was way before the harnesses were even made. Yeah. So no one really had an accurate like weight of them, and right. no one knew exactly of the, their exact locations either. They just knew it to the best of their abilities where. You know, they thought in four years before the harnesses were built, where they were going to go. Right. Um, and then in the end, like, for example, like, we didn't even account, I mean, account for, like, for example, like, zip ties, right? We use special zip ties that are space rated to, to tie down the harnesses. Did anyone account for those? I don't, I don't know. I mean, they're pretty small and They're mass, pretty small, but, but when you have something that's this delicate, sensitive, sensitive and, and, and there are these actuators that are this... I get sensitive and 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 uh, dependent upon mass properties. I mean, every little bit counts. And I, I'm, I mean, there's a lot. We're still kind of crossing our fingers that it, it won't cause that much of an issue. Like that's one. Like you said, there's zip ties. In the end, it probably won't have that big of an effect. But we still should have accounted for that. Um, but in the end, yeah, harnessing was an interesting go for yeah, it. Um, and it was really, it was really worthwhile because you, I think being working on harness, and I think it's something that a lot of people overlook. I was about to say harnessing. If you said you know you did harnessing, oh, you're plugging together stuff like a computer. Yeah, but I didn't realize there was so much depth. Yeah, like like, and there's even redundancy. Like when people think about spacecraft, like before we were talking about flight computer redundancy, how we don't have that. But like something like the harness needs the similar types of redundancy in case something fails. Right. You can so still and we had and we had that. So for example, like just like to go into like a, a bit more detail than it probably needs. Need I need to, but just like. Each solder joint that you make needs to have, basically, it needs to be done to the correct specifications that NASA gives you that says this is a good solder joint. It needs to be, like, each solder joint is wrapped in a piece of wire for more physical um, rigidity. 
and then it's covered in heat shrink, which is also to some degree, which is then you, when you heat it up, it shrinks and then it's holding that connection together. And then, so those, those three things are made on every single line on the satellite, with, of which there are hundreds, you know, probably up or almost, maybe a little, probably like thousands, almost thousands. Of and it's in order to improve the robustness of your yeah. design and make mm -hmm. sure your satellite doesn't fail for some if it gets vibration yeah, or heat. heat or thermal cycling, especially. That one is terrifying. I think that was one of the big ones there. Yeah. And um, there's this NASA soldering guide that yeah. that um, pretty much everybody who joins Harness has to read. And that's I think that's on might be on the syllabus. I mean, but you read NASA this. has 50, 60 years of yes. flight experience. So they, they, yeah. so they, know they wrote all this on. stuff to make sure that yeah. everybody else learned from their mistakes. And yeah. it's in this, like, for example, like there's this harness guide is like, it's old, but it's still the go-to. Like you can actually find it. They're called the NASA workmanship standards. You can actually just Google it and look it up. Cool. Um, so that was pretty cool. And I think uh, like we were talking about checkouts before being doing harness at first, you, you are forced to become familiar with everything on the satellite it's not like you know like i feel like other people who need who are the experts on their individual pieces of the satellite and need to be experts on the individual pieces of the satellite like patrick would regarding to the tnc system or the power board that patrick worked on with a bunch of other people or the attitude control system um uh need, they need to focus on the gyroscopes and the ways to control those gyroscopes or the the people who worked the command data handling need to focus on the sun sensor and the star tracker but you can't the, just focus on harness because you have to focus on everything that else. means you're focusing on everything the harness is connecting with which is everything on the satellite and i think when it came down to like running because i when i was in charge of running a lot of all of this checkouts then this these peripheral tests and in the end, I think it gave me a really broad analysis from a system level um, yeah. place. So I think that was really good. So awesome. That's, that's the harness spiel. So. Cool. Okay. So let's talk about uh, the main payload that we kind of touched on, control moment gyroscopes a little bit. Um, but you mentioned sun sensors and a star tracker, and those all go into the attitude control system. Yeah. So how the satellite knows its orientation and how it acts upon it and, and redirects its orientation and things. Um, so a, can you explain a little bit what a, what a sun sensor is and yeah. um, how it integrates with the rest of the satellite? Absolutely. So I, I worked on, so I was lead of someone initiated in communications um, and then I also worked on guidance, navig guidance navigation control, basically attitude control systems. Um, and so I, I guess I can talk about that. The sun sensor is pretty much a fancy photodiode. Um, and so basically what it's going to tell you is uh, like brightness in certain parts. It's a charge couple device, kind so of like a camera. Do you have multiple? You have we one only on have each? one sun sensor. Okay. And then we also have a star tracker. And so what a star tracker will do is it's also a charge couple device. So it'll find points of highest intensity in the sky and then compare those with a lookup table of pretty much like a table of just recorded stars. And so once it can find a geometric pattern relation, so basically do a correlation coefficient and find like the highest value, then it realizes, oh crap, like we're looking at this part of the sky, so we must be in this place with relation to the Earth. Right, so the sun sensor is more of like um, a general, it's, yeah. it doesn't have points of light, it's just blurriness, brightness, whatever. Exactly. And that detects based on like the angle of incidence with the, with the sun. Yeah, so it's actually like significantly more complicated than that. I'm pretty, I'm pretty much low uh, balling it, I guess here. 
But uh, if you look at diagrams, there are like two vectors coming out of the sun sensor, the sun sensor that you can like uh, do uh, brightness relationship math against. Um, and you can look this all up. I'm not an expert on sun sensors by far. Yeah. But it's a very simple device. Um, it's used on uh, CubeSat. Sometimes it's in. Yeah. Um, you can get. Um, solar panels that have sun sensors embedded in them. Yeah, so those ones are predominantly, they're actually just like photodiodes. And, and the cool thing about that is on those solar panel things that you buy for CubeSats, you can put four different photodiodes. Um, and, then, and then you make your own relationship between those. Exactly. And that's really cool. So a sun sensor has to be facing the sun, but obviously you're in orbit. So the Earth, I mean, if you're going to the ISS, you're roughly equatorial, right? Or... I mean, you're not uh, yeah. polar. Yes, you're not point. polar. So the Earth obstructs... Um, the, the Earth is between you, the satellite and the sun um, at portions of the orbit. So the sun sensor is useless during those times, right? Yes, it is. Do you um, rely... I mean, you'd have to rely on the star tracker in those cases. Yeah. There are certain do you points. have both for redundancy, or do you prefer the sun sensor and then only use the star tracker for other things? Like, how does that work? Yeah, so they're given weights in different parts of the orbit. So pretty much star tracker is always going to be like the most effective thing because uh, you're going to be able to know where the stars are anywhere you are. Um, and then secondarily, you comes the LN200, and that's our fiber optic gyroscope. So that's just going to give us angular rates pretty much on three axes. So that's kind of like what's in my phone the same yeah it's just a it's the same technology so what you have in your phone is mems and it's microelectromechanical a device and so in the satellite is what and in the satellite it's it's a fiber optic gyroscope so what it does is it like measures the disparity and distance between two different kinds of reflections or it's something more complicated than that but that's the gist of it um and it's it's literally a laser um so and in fiber optics. But that's in all like enclosed in a little in a little exactly. chip. And it's a hermetically sealed package. It's incredibly accurate, but in terms of uh, figuring out the attitude of your satellite, it's easier to use your star tracker than the fog. So does the um, the fiber optic one? Um, what was the name again? Fiber optic gyroscope. It's the LN two hundred. Oh, fog. Okay. Yeah. So, um, is that only your relative? Orienta orientation yeah. so do you, does it measure the rate of change exactly so it's just going to measure omega um and so you can actually you, and then from that over long periods of time you can figure out uh like how much you spun and so that's incredibly useful for our cmgs so if we figure out oh you know we we're changing at uh, you know five degrees a second then we can tune our controller and you to, can you can measure your orientation without like checking this relation to the sun every every second. Exactly. So if all we care about is is uh, slewing like thirty degrees in one direction, we can do that with just relying purely on the gyroscope. So somebody who knows more about this is not here at the current moment, but um, basically that's the gist of it. And all the sensors go into this um, extended Kalman filter, which is a decently complicated filter that uses uh, a lot of statistics and uncertainties. Um, to figure out like the best estimation of the actual attitude of the satellite. I mean, you can look that up more. It, that's a huge rabbit hole. It's incredibly complicated. Really cool, though. Um, and are those um, commercial off the shelf, uh, the sun sensor and the star tracker? Yes. So all the sensors are COTS. And pretty much most people um, developing a satellite like this where we're going to be using COTS components for sensors. I mean, a lot of people do develop their own star trackers, and that is really cool. Yeah. Um, that's something I'd like to get into more.
when, when you're controlling things, um, you set up your, you turn on a few of the CMGs and you say, I want to turn 30 degrees to the left at five degrees per second. Does it, um, is there like an internal model that guesses how it should be and then it compares it with yes, exactly. the measurements? Yes. So we have an internal physics model um, and then not only that, so it's a simulation of our own self, uh, but we use a PD controller, right? There's no integration whatsoever. And so the PD controller will pretty much say, uh, oh crap, we have a set point, an, an offset in, um, in uh, so we have an offset. We set up, we do a set point at let's say 30 degrees off of theta. Um, and then we, we do our relation at our, our position at that time subtracted from the set point, and that's our error. And we can we can and basically you tell it to say zero error, and yes. then it goes. So go to it's always going to be zero error, and so you're going to go towards your zero error, and so you're going to have so a PD controller is a derivative and a, and a uh, proportional, and so you're going to be multiplying it by two different gain values, um, and so. Yeah. I just took a class on controls, classical control systems, and there you go. So you're gonna know a lot about sense. feedback control systems. Yeah, um, and so that's what that is. Right. Um, like, what are what are some examples of things that would cause error in your control? Um, so yeah, you you can have offsets in center of mass. Um, you can have radiation pressures in pretty pretty small because uh, the area of you're our not satellite. Not very big, right? Sorry, you're not very big for radiation pressure to matter that yeah, much. Exactly, yeah. And then also we're not uh, reflective, right? So if you have a reflective surface, then your MV is double pretty right. much because you're reflecting energy in in the opposite direction instead of absorbing it. So uh, radiation pressure is not really a big deal. Um, honestly, I think probably the um, oxygen that's hitting us, like the tiny bits of oxygen floating out there yeah. is probably more of a deal than than uh, that stuff. But yeah, so we'll have issues like that. Um, uh, and, and there's like perturbations in orbit, like it's, there's uncertainties, but that's not going to be a big deal. I mean, that's a lot of, since the steady state error is so small, um, that's why the I, in the PID controller, that's why there's, there isn't an, an I, like our, our PD controller could have been a PID controller but because steady state error is so minimal in space that's why we just have a pd control system instead of a pid control system right because it's just unnecessary um because the steady state error is so small um so and i i'm not a huge controls guys myself but i i actually just also just took my first controls course um but that's it in general patrick patrick uh, described it spot on you mentioned how your satellite isn't very reflective, and we, we talked, like, obviously there's solar panels on it, right? Yeah. So, um, you want to be, and plus the, the sun the sun sensor. So you want to be facing the sun and be exposed to the sun, but obviously that's going to heat up your spacecraft. Um, or is there a, a, a radiator or some sort of thermal control system on board we do not have any sort of radiator or thermal control system so, so how does pretty it much we rely upon the times that we're not in the sun um and so weigh that excess heat and then when you're in the sun you did the math and said well we don't get hot enough for us to worry about it yeah and, then, and and space is a scary place you want heat and you also don't want heat right so when you're in the sun you can't have too much or else your electronics are going to fly fry um and if you're uh, behind the earth well, 
You don't want to freeze. You really don't want to freeze because most electronics that we're using are capable from negative 40C to 80C. And what are the conditions in space? And conditions space can be up to like 100C and then significantly lower than negative 40C. I don't know exactly. Negative 60 uh, to negative 100. Okay, um, then let's get on to the power system. Um, Absolutely. So you have solar panels, obviously you probably have batteries, and you have to supply a crap load of power to all these... Um, like the computers, microcontrollers, the um, sensors themselves, yep. uh, so it doesn't die and can also do this mission. Do you just like sit there and wait in the sun and charge up your massive batteries and stuff, and then so, that's what I do in Kerbal Space Program. So yeah, so let me let me describe all that. So sure. first, let me throw down some specs on the power system. Um, so. Uh, we have four 3S lithium-ion cells, which have a nominal voltage of, of like, I think it's like 11.1 or something like 12.4, something like that. Anyways, what we do for charging is we have uh, two sets of solar panels, or two, I guess, categories. So we have our high-power solar panels, which is a triple junction gallium arsenide cell array, um, and that's on the top of our satellites. When we go, when we say we go sun pointing, we're pointing our best solar panels towards the sun. And so those are about 30% efficient, which is actually like really high. What's well, the standard high for solar cells at the time? We have two different kinds. We have a triple junction gallium arsenide. I think both of them are. It's just one is more efficient. And do you use um, the more efficient one in only one location for cost reasons? Uh, no. Uh, pretty much if you distribute them, um, well, it's easier to have them concentrated and get more power output if you go some pointing with them than to distribute those cells. It's more efficient to have one really good High one patch. and then get all your charging at the yeah. same time. And then and we didn't have a choice on that. All the cells were donated. Um, okay. And so basically we can get upwards of a couple amps input from the solar cells at any point in time. Um, and so for controlling charge, we have a state of charge algorithm. And basically what that means is we've characterized our batteries and the charge discharge sort of um, like curve will be flattened. Most lithium ion batteries have like this really flat curve right in the middle. Um, and so most of your operation needs to happen towards the high part of that curve and the start of that flat. Um, and so what we do is we use in, we just use a voltage divider and read that into an analog digital converter on the power board. So you can read the level of the batteries. Um, and depending on what the level of the battery is, we're going to be in a different charge regime. So if we're below a specific level of like nominal operation, you go to we low start battery turning off things. Yeah, unnecessary things or uh, yeah, less priority. Exactly. Like you turn off the CMGs. So we have, yes, well. Except for like one so you can point at the sun. <laughs> um, so what we do is we don't turn off the CMGs. We turn off one of the radios. We turn off the GPSs, which we haven't talked about, but we have GPSs. Those are actually some of the most important sensors. I didn't even know those were on it. Okay. Yeah, well, continue, continue. there we go. Um, anyways, so we turn off some of the less important stuff. Like, we don't, we don't really need a sun sensor on there. Um, and then that starts charging back up. Um, and once it's reached, uh, and to prevent oscillation, you add in a buffer, right? Because you could reach the operation regime and then discharge the hell out of it and oscillate around that point. Mm. So you add in a little buffer so it can get like somewhere in the middle so like, of the regime. Okay, now I'm in the other regime, but I just came out of the other one, so I'm going to wait a little bit. Exactly. So basically you charge for an extra longer until you're in the middle of your normal operation regime and then you and then you do whatever you want. Um, and you can start and it does that autom it does that completely automatically. Exactly. And so then we also have another regime which is totally not practical and if I were designing it, I wouldn't do it. Um, it's the shunt regime. 
Um, and basically that's an overpower, it's our safe mode. If we charge the batteries too much, we have to discharge it through a, a resistor. Huh. Um, and so that is totally usable on a, t a bunch of satellites. Like if satellites. you overpressure uh, like if a bottle you have, and you have a release valve. Right. Yeah. That's what you're doing. Except with power through and it releases heat through the resistor exactly. to discharge it. Heat dissipation. So that's the gist of the power system. The power board is uh, pretty complicated. It's a 10 layer board. Um, it would take up half a CubeSat if you cut it into 10 by 10 centimeter parts. Wow. Um, it's a pretty large board. It, it supplies 12 volts, 18 volts, 5 volts, 3.3 volts. Um, and all of those are actually isolated. So there's a bunch of different channels. Um, and those are all uh, inhibitable and uh, enableable by the microcontroller. So pretty much we just have this little latching transistor circuit that turns them on and off whenever you want to. Um, and so that's so, to make sure you don't send too much current or too much voltage to yeah, the yeah. wrong thing or not enough to the other thing. Well, that's, And it takes all the power from your power storage, which batteries, right? Yeah. So, and, then, and then regulates it to the right places. So what will happen is we take in battery voltage. And so that's battery voltage plus solar. Uh, and another thing I would recommend to people is to use a maximum power point tracker. We basically have, which is an which is a fancy way of saying you suck as much power out of the solar panels as you can. And that's another piece of hardware. Uh, but we don't have that. We just hook the solar panels directly to the batteries. Not the most kosher thing, but okay. basically after that, it goes into a bunch of DC-DC converters um, that go out to these different voltage lines. And those are standard voltage lines that I, were I was talking about before. Okay. And then those will go to a bunch of different switching circuits. And the microcontroller will switch the power on or off um, depending on whatever. So let's say the flight computer wants to turn on the GPS unit. It's going to tell the power board, yo, turn on the GPS unit. And it'll, it'll just flip a little switch, a little transistor circuit, um, and it'll turn on the GPS. So, and then we have two different types of feedback. Um, we have a voltage feedback and a current feedback on the output um, of that circuit. And so that loops back right into um, the analog to digital converter. And so basically, if we're pulling too much current, we automatically turn off that component. From Does operating. that mean, uh, would that happen in case, like if it malfunctioned? Or yeah, if there's a short, um, and so we've had problems like that when we were integrating. Um, would it ever, that would never happen in a nominal case? That would only be some anomaly? Exactly. So like imagine um, in a, the vibration environment of a launch vehicle. Something comes loose. Yeah, the harness breaks and something is touching, then that would happen. Um, or let's say uh, we didn't stake a component down correctly, and staking is pretty much the process of putting like epoxy on a component that's off the board, so right. that it doesn't vibrate and jiggle off or right. break or short. Okay. Um, and so if something like that happened, then the the microcontroller reads in, holy crap, the current is way too high, and we have a lookup table that pretty much will pull out a value that is nominal, and if it's higher than the nominal value, it shuts it off. So. In developing the power board, is this something that, like harnessing, had to be done after everything else was really far along? Or no. can you start this right from the beginning? So the hardware is all the same. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty universal. You just want to make sure that all the parts can support a quantity of current. And so what you want to do in design is just make sure that that current is really, really high. And also you want to make sure that it, it um, can operate under good thermal conditions. Because thermal is pretty much everything. Um, so there's that. And then in the code, later on, you can add in different current values for limiting. So like, let's say we switch a component 
but it's still on five volts, but this time it's pulling one amp instead of half an amp. Let's set the nominal to 1.1 amps. So if it ever goes one, over 1.1 amps, shuts it off. So, but another thing you have to worry about is uh, peak power. You're gonna have all these transients sometimes when you turn systems on. So for example, torque coils or CMGs. Um, they're basically a power dump, right? Because they're just shorts. That's what motors are in, in the end. Um, so those are going to have massive transients. And so you have to basically tell it, yo, ignore the first couple readings. But if it's steady state higher than nominal, then kill it. Uh, and that's also pretty complicated. Yeah. So the, the power board code is one of the biggest code bases that we have. You know, second only to the flight code, which yeah. is the biggest. I was going to kind of ask about that. It sounds like a lot of the monitoring and, and things, code that the power board runs on, and even to some extent the other um, pieces of code, what does the flight controller do that those don't? Um, it sounds like everything is kind of like keeping track of itself, doing its own thing. Autonomous. Um, is that what you mean, autonomous? It seems like every subsystem is relatively autonomous and just yeah. talks to each other. So what does the flight computer do that the other... Um, systems don't. So in terms of health checking and stuff like that, if the computer, the flight computer doesn't do much. Um, so if you're talking about health checking as in thermal power voltage levels, it's usually autonomous on the power board. So if powers go over, the power board will yeah, automatically. Like you, it, it keeps track by itself. So what does the flight computer, what's its main, like what is it telling the other things? Okay, do? so flight computer is um, pretty much entirely for data storage, so st like storing files and then downlinking them, as well as controlling the whole satellite. So uh, basically that's going to be so in charge of all the controls. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then there's a bunch of different communication protocols it's in charge of and, and just tying the whole thing together. And, and commanding is generally... Yeah. Is so the center of commanding is, is the flight computer. Yeah. You okay. can't command any of the microcontrollers just by themselves like all the commands go th into the flight computer from ground right um and then the flight computer will read that command and act on what it wants to do so if you tell you know you know cmg one to spool up to 2000 rpm it's going to send a command to the control board to do that cool so it's all that's all communication stuff i was talking about it's all the com protocols awesome yeah so that's that tj um do you have anything to add or, or ask with regards to the uh, pointing system, you guys mentioned uh, 20 degrees per second was your max rotation rate. Uh, is that correct? That is correct, yeah. Uh, what's your uh, fine pointing accuracy? Is there a trade-off between speed and accuracy, or can you kind of get good performance in both of those? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know too much about the actual like fine accuracy of pointing. Um, I'd assume it's probably not that big of a deal because all it is is uh, with respect in, to uh, delta omega right I mean when it comes down to it is that's pretty much yeah, what it's about it, it, the question is like if you can get it to spin really quickly but maybe it oscillates around a, a point that's you know like really like you it would maybe it jitters or oh um, so as for tuning I'm not quite sure, sure how we tune uh, the games. And not even, you know, having high speed and high accuracy at the same time, but using those same systems, being able to do high pointing accuracy instead. Yeah, I, I don't know too much about uh, pointing accuracy. Um, that's not like a test that we can do. We don't really have the infrastructure to just 
um, spin up the fully integrated satellite on Earth. And oh, so that I mean, you'll you'll discover that and you'll characterize that on the mission then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's also going to be a property with respect to the actual slewing algorithm. But at the same time, the we have this PD controller that uses the we we actually have built a MATLAB model to simulate different conditions in space um, that we've used throughout this entire process to allow for developing, um, we actually use MATLAB and Simulink um, for, for this purpose, and basically to allow us to, to generate different conditions and to basically to tune this controller so we can have the highest pointing accuracy possible. Okay. Um, so, so even though I, I'm not, I was not really involved with that, I can yeah. say that... Um, I can talk more about that. Um, okay. Yeah, so the, the MATLAB model, the simulation that we have on ground, um, that is like an ideal situation. That's uh, pretty much what we will, what we did use to tune right. everything for slowing up. Sorry, I have a quick question about that. And besides the checkouts, do you have a, a way to um, check the um, like do a hardware in the loop test with the gyros? Exactly. And so we we do have that, but. We're not able to actually point anything on ground. So the extent of hardware in the loop, uh, which is called a flat sat test, is just the speeds of exactly. the CMGs. So what we do is there's a rotary encoder on the CMGs. We command two uh, two thousand RPM, two kilo RPM, and then we read the rotary encoder, and we can pretty much look at the error between those two. Um, and so the MATLAB script that he was talking about doesn't actually. Um, so we can take in those values and look at the error. But it's, that's not going to tell us exactly what's going to ha happen in space. Because there are so many other uncertainties with respect to like literally the hardware and th that the simulation has no access to. And that's why you're doing it in space, though. Like, that's, yes. that's the point. Yeah, that's <laughs> is the to point. see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you guys mentioned uh, taking a variety of control algorithms and testing them on your satellite. So I'm assuming a lot of those are... Uh, not in-house, those are other people bringing their own algorithms and you're just implementing them? Yes, that's true. Uh, are you guys, how familiar are you guys uh, with like the end goal of those? Are you trying to optimize for power usage or speed of execution or are you just kind of like getting these algorithms and just putting them into the code base? So, so with that, that's a good question. Um, it's pretty much all proprietary. We don't really know what the actual guest investigator wants out of it. So we have algorithms from a bunch of different companies. Um, and what we do is just give them the result of what happens. So I'm not certain what they're looking for. I'd assume it is like uh, ability to lock on to one angle from a high speed because that seems like the most important and obvious thing that's going on with this. But did they give you um, like particular constraints like, hey, you can only use this much power or no, they pretty much just gave us an algorithm, and then we use that algorithm to operate. So, right, yeah. Obviously, they gave us like um, speeds of spinning and stuff like that, but that's about it. Now, did either of you work on actually uh, implementing those al algorithms, or was that someone else on your team? So, no, we did not. That was someone else on the team. We're not really allowed to talk about how those algorithms work. Those are all super proprietary. Um, but yeah, very interesting. Uh, well, I, d I don't have any more questions for you guys. This has been freaking awesome. Um, for
for the people listening, is there um, any way they, wh where can they go to learn more about Violet, uh, the Cornell Space Systems Design Studio, um, or what's going to come next out of it? Sure. Um, just Google Cornell Space Systems Design Studio. We have a website. <laughs> uh, we don't post often. Um, I think we also have a Twitter, but haven't posted in two years or something. In my research, I also found a proposal paper on Violet, um, and it goes into uh, maybe even a little more depth than we got into here about everything. Oh, significantly more. We are, we are, David and I are high-level people. We came in towards the end of the program. We debugged and made it work. We did not do the design. We're not really knowledgeable about the low-level controls. Right. And you can find more um, about the design and um, the proposal on the, on the website. It would um, be author Mason Peck. So. Yeah. So um, just last thing personally right now, um, Patrick, David, and, and I are interns at SpaceX in uh, Hawthorne, California, which is awesome. Uh, what can we expect like next from you guys when you go back to school? How, um, like, do you have any plans for other cool stuff that you're going to be working on? Like, what, what's the goal? David, I'll let you go first. Um, so now that Violet's sort of uh, in the books and built, um, and now that a, a lot of people still be, we'll, we'll be working on that side of it as we push towards hopefully launching within the next year or two, um, I myself will not be working on that project anymore. Um, I'm actually doing an, my own senior design project working on a new a new payload, um, a new small satellite with a graduate student who was also previously on Violet. And it's actually um, a cryogenic satellite. That's the goal. So it, it's going to be a satellite that can function in extreme cold, um, uh, like a deep space sort of. Uh, right. mission um, and I will be helping design it from the ground up which would be a great change from sort of all of the debugging you're kind of doing it backwards exactly. you built one now yeah. you got to design it I got to design one so that's, that's what I'm working on cool what about you Patrick uh, I can't talk too much about what I'm doing um, I assure you it's going to be related to spacecraft but um, well when you, when you do when you are able to talk about it you better come back on the show we'll see what happens yeah sounds good to me cool uh, so, um, any closing remarks for people listening? Um, the only thing I guess that I'll say is that uh, if you have a passion for spacecraft, go go work on spacecraft in any way you can. Whether it's googling stuff and learning things, or if you have if you have an opportunity to go do work on them, like we were honestly really lucky to have this opportunity. If you ever have an opportunity to do something like this, just go do it and have fun with it and. You can do some meet some cool people like uh, like this guy Phil right here <laughs> and do some really cool stuff. So just go do it. That's all I really have to say. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. Um, I think it's becoming more and more available to pretty much every university um, with the especially with the advent of CubeSats. So you know, find a college you're interested in that has a program or start a program or yeah, googling stuff works too. Um, that's all you need to do. Cool. Thanks a lot, you guys. This is Thanks for having us. Awesome. Thanks for listening to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, it was our first endeavor into a really technical interview. We hope it was as much fun listening to it as it was making it. 
If you're part of a, a satellite team at your university or you know people building satellites, building space stuff and doing all kinds of cool things in the aerospace industry, let us know. Uh, we'd love to have more people on the show uh, getting their ideas heard, uh, getting people interested in space exploration and, you know, really just learning ourselves. So get in touch with us at our Twitter page at RIT Specs. Facebook at facebook.com slash RIT specs or email us via specscast at gmail.com. And lastly, if you want to help out the show, it'd be great to write us a review and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Our music is by Kevin Hartnell. All right, that's it. Good job, you guys. GG. GG. GG.